You do the middle part of Matthew first, and then you go back to the start, all right? And so that's what we're doing. We're doing Matthew 1 and 2 and focusing particularly on the kingship of Jesus. That's what Matthew is trying to present to us is Jesus as our king. And so he wants us to understand uh, his rule and his reign and uh, what that looks like to be in the kingdom. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. We will be in Matthew chapter 1 today, uh, minus a quick reference. We won't be jumping out of there, so you can turn there. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there's some under every second and third chair around you. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, we want you to take and keep that. Uh, We want you to have the word uh, during the week and be able to uh, use that on your own. So please, that's our gift to you. Uh, Please take that. You can also follow along on your smartphone. If you have the YouVersion app underneath the tab section, uh, click on events, type in the well, Austin. You can follow along that way. There are uh, notes, places for uh, all the scripture and things like that. So uh, if you don't have the YouVersion app or have no clue what I'm talking about, you could take this link and put it right into your browser and you'll be able to follow along that way. We say this every week because we mean it. I don't really care how you look at the word, but I want you looking at the word so that you see that the words here are not merely words of me. My words have no power, but these are the words of God. And we think that God has laid out in his scriptures how we can know him. He has revealed himself to us. They are powerful. And so we want your eyes on the text, whatever that may look like, all right? And so feel free to turn there with me today. Um, Last week, we looked at Jesus's genealogy, and we kind of looked at how Jesus was the better David or the greater David. He was the king of David who has come to ransom captive Israel from their sins. And he called gender outcast, we saw through his uh, timeline, his genealogy. He called uh, social or moral outcasts, and he called racial outcasts. So Jesus came into the earth, and God himself has been working throughout human history to really call all people to himself, that God was not just a God of the Jews, but really the king of the world. And Jesus wanted the whole world to understand and to be able to submit to his kingship in a lot of ways. And so this week we're looking at particularly how Jesus was the king of the Jews and really more so what that means for us as a body. Next week we'll look at how he was the king of the Gentiles. And then finally, uh, in December 18th, we'll look at how he was the king of all kings, that Jesus was over even the greatest kings. And so uh, that's what we'll be doing. So let's go ahead and dive in. Matthew chapter 1. We'll read our whole text for today and then chop it up. So Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, that word kind of means engaged, to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for uh, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, Matthew, like we just mentioned, was writing mainly to the Jews, trying to convince them that, in fact, Jesus was both 
both Savior, man, and God. And so Matthew is doing all this dancing throughout his gospel to kind of show Jesus is the Messiah or the Savior. He has come to free us, not just from captive Rome or even more so a greater enemy. Jesus has come to free us. He's also man. He was literally born. He literally walked on earth. He was not like Casper the ghost, okay? Like he was an actual man, flesh put on amongst us, and he's also God. And so Matthew's trying to show that over and over again. What Matthew does is to his Jewish audience, he continually quotes the scriptures over and over and over, as you see even in this passage here. Matthew actually quotes uh, the scriptures more than all of the three other gospel writers combined. And so Matthew, what he's doing is he's contextualizing the gospel, or he's trying to help the Jews understand in a way that makes most sense to them who Jesus is. And so it's a good skill for us to know, to think about how broad the gospel is, because Jesus really has come to reach every kind of people. And no matter where you're at, what camp you're in, the gospel really makes sense to us individually. So Matthew is taking what the Jews would understand, the scriptures, and he's trying to uh, show them to the Jewish nation, help them understand that Jesus is indeed the king of the Jews. Now, here in this passage, we have what is probably one of the most shocking, or at least one of the most profound pieces of scripture in all of the Bible, and it's that the God of the universe became a baby, okay? Now, our hearts are dull to that in a lot of ways, and what I want to do is I want to undull our hearts a little bit today because this is a fascinating and a profound truth. The God of the universe became a baby. In the Old Testament, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, what would happen when God would show up? Like, think about the Old Testament a little bit. What are some of the things that would happen when the presence of the Lord would show up in a place? You think about Moses, and the presence of God came, and Moses saw where God had been, is what that kind of translates to. So he didn't even see God. God walked past, he saw where God had been, or saw God's back, and then he came down off of the mountain, and his face was shining with the Shekinah glory of God, so much so that he had to wear a veil, because people couldn't look at him because of how much glory was emanating off of Moses' face from seeing where God had been. It was terrifying is what it was. So he wore a veil to hide it or to mask it. Or you think about Isaiah, when he sees the Lord, he falls down as though dead and the angels and the seraphim are are hiding their eyes and their feet and they're screaming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. The angels can't even bear to look at God's presence. You think about uh, Elijah, when he was on the mountain, you see the, the, the earthquake and the fire come out and Elijah's terrified. Or you look at Job, and when God comes down to Job, he comes down as a whirlwind or a tornado, and he is terrifying Job. Job says, I cover my mouth and my feet, and I won't even look at you. I don't talk anymore, right? Like, that's what the presence of God does to Job. It's terrifying. That God became the least terrifying thing in human existence, a baby, right? Like, like how many of you are terrified of children, okay? Now, now I will admit this, all right? I will admit this. I personally don't really like kids, okay? And I admit that. And I don't feel sacrilegious just because we're talking about Jesus as a baby today, okay? The reason that I don't really like kids is that to some extent, I feel kind of terrified of them because I feel like if I hold them and sneeze wrong, I break their rib, right? Or I'll drop them and ruin the child, okay? And so I don't really like handling other people's kids. I like my kids, by the way. Don't, don't get that wrong, right? But I don't really like kids. But you see, 
see God becoming a child. Like, like I want you to think about that because this isn't just a, 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 a fictional story. This isn't just like God became a baby and nobody in here is in dread of a baby like they would kill you when you looked at them, right? I mean, I don't know, maybe you are, but you must not have seen many children then, okay? Because there's nothing to be in dread of. Like, so the God of the Old Testament, who nobody can even look at, becomes literally one of the most helpless things in human creation. A baby, innocent, nobody feels dread. In fact, you feel like you can come into the presence whenever you want of a baby. Like, I want you to think about the miracle that what we're saying, we're saying God became a baby, That literally sounds almost like blasphemous in some ways. This awesome, powerful God belittles himself to become a little tiny human child. This is a profound story. That's what we mean when we say that. So we want you to get two pictures here. One of them, friends, is that we don't serve a pathetic God who's unable to lift a finger. Like, we serve the God of the universe who literally spoke and everything that we see exploded into existence. Like, when I speak, nothing happens. In fact, when I speak, some of you fall asleep, right? Like, the exact opposite effect, okay? God speaks and boom, everything comes into existence. Like, we serve a powerful God, yet we serve a God who became a child, to come close to us, this is a profound truth that God would become man. And so if this is what you think of in Christmas and it doesn't woo your heart, then you're like most of us, you become dull to the Christmas story a little bit. And I think that I love the nativity scene, the nativity scene is great, but I think that it's dulled us a little bit, right? Like like we see it and we're like, oh, that's really cute, that's cool, but we don't think about the power that is wrapped up into the story. This is a profound story, okay? And so what we're going to do is that we're going to tackle it backwards today. So we're going to start at the end, verse 25, and then we're going to go back up to the top, and we're going to try to unpack exactly what this story means for us as we get the context that God became baby, this profound statement, which by the way, when the Jews in the first century were reading this, this by itself may have stopped them, and they may not have gone past this because it's hard to think about Yahweh turning into a child, but that's the truth of the gospel is that God wanted to be close to us. So the humblest and the most lowly condition, God wanted to come close to you. And so one point one of our sermon is Christmas is God's way of telling you, I want to be close to you. I want to be intimate with you. God loves you and he wants to be close to you. That's the first point of Christmas is that God loves you and he wants to be close to you. Christmas isn't just about trees and presents and singing carols and all that's good things. None of that's bad. But the point of Christmas is that God loves you and he wants to be close to you. As I was prepping the sermon this week, I found it hard to say in my heart, God loves me. And I was saying it out loud a little bit, but it's, it's, it's hard to remember that because I know who I am. I know how I mess up. I know where I go wayward at times, but that's the whole point of the Christmas story. That God loves you and wants to be close with you. And so that's really verse 25. He gave birth to a child, to a baby. The God became flesh. He wanted to be close to you because he's revealing to you how much he loves you. Now, if you go back up there to verse 23, what Matthew does there is he quotes the the scriptures from Isaiah. And so uh, what happens here is that Joseph is kind of conflicted in the story as a whole because this wasn't just a a normal birth. This wasn't even kind of like a miraculous birth. This was an utterly miraculous birth, 
right? Like, like the virgin conceived and had a child. And so you see in the context of the story, Joseph is literally conflicted as to what he's supposed to do here. Like, how am I supposed to handle this, right? Like, like please put yourself in Joseph's shoes for a quick second, okay? This woman that you love, you've just engaged yourself to, she comes to you and says, hey, I'm pregnant, all right? And you're like, all right, well, this is over. And then she says, and the Holy Spirit's the one who impregnated me, <laughs> okay? Now, what Joseph is probably thinking here for a second is either this woman thinks I'm crazy, okay, or she's crazy and I didn't even see it. Like somehow I engaged her and now all of a sudden I'm seeing how crazy she is, right? Like this is a profound thing. I am giving birth to a savior and man, the Holy Spirit impregnated me. Like this is a profound truth. And so Joseph is probably conflicted. He's probably thinking, okay, she slept with someone else and, and, and I don't know what I'm gonna do about this. And so he goes back and it says Joseph was a just man. And so he was going to divorce her quietly. And so instead of putting her to open shame, which could have resulted in Mary's even death, he said, instead, no, I'm going to divorce her quietly, which by the way, the word betrothed means engage, but in that culture, uh, engagement was a lot like marriage. Once you were engaged, you didn't break it off. And so in our culture, sometimes today, people get engaged and then the engagement ends, but that's not true in the biblical culture. Once you're engaged, you're really married, which is why it uses the term divorce and husband, even though they're not actually technically married yet. So Joseph would have had to gone through the legal process of a divorce. And so Joseph is thinking, how do I do this well? Just bring in a few witnesses and really trying to figure that out. But we see that there was a miraculous conception and the Holy Spirit, and, or sorry, an angel comes and tells Joseph that same thing. Hey, no, 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 this is actually from the Holy Spirit, okay? And what he says is, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, or Matthew says, God with us. So that term Emmanuel means God with us. The Bible makes sure that we're clear that we understand that Jesus is both God and man. And that's what Matthew is doing throughout this text is he's trying to show us that God tabernacled in our presence, Emmanuel, God with us. As John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is truly God living in our midst. This isn't just a man who's been empowered by God, okay? It's actually God. In the flesh, Emmanuel, God is coming down with us. Sometimes we think about Jesus and we think about him as a baby that then uh, got the power of the Holy Spirit and then that's what makes him kind of look like God. No, he was actually God in the flesh amongst us, Emmanuel. And so Matthew is trying to make sure that we understand that point. Yet, Jesus was born of a woman. And so Jesus is also man. As we talked about last week, Matthew keeps trying to show that he's both man and God, born of a spirit and born of the woman, of Mary, through a virgin conception. So Matthew is quoting the prophecy in Isaiah, saying that he would be born of a woman. And remember last week, what we said is that over and over throughout the genealogy, it would say things like David, the father of Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, the father of over and over and over again. But if Mary and Joseph went on Mori, Joseph wouldn't be the baby's daddy, right? Like Joseph was not the father of Jesus, and Matthew didn't say that. Matthew or said that Mary bore Jesus. So Jesus was born of Mary. So that's an important point too, is that uh, 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 Joseph isn't really Jesus's father. God the Father is. 
Now, Joseph bore him and raised him as his child, but Jesus was God. Therefore, his father is God because they are one, the Trinity, one in three. So Matthew's drawing this crazy distinction, yet it's Emmanuel. It's God with us. And so there's an important point in this text that they both are true at the same time. And here's why this is important. We said this last week too, but we know that only God can forgive people of their sins. Only God has the right authority, the right power, the right justice to be able to forgive us of our sins, but only man can actually pay for man's sins. And so you have a dilemma. God wants to be close to us. We just said that as point one. And so Jesus draws himself close by becoming a baby, but only God could pay for sins. How do you do both at the same time? In enters in God, Emmanuel. And so you have this cool little thing that Matthew's doing there is he's doing a play on words, as you see up there on the screen. And so Jesus literally is the Hebrew word Joshua, which just means God saves. That's the best translation, if you will, in English, God saves. Emmanuel means God with us. And so what Matthew is showing is Jesus is both God and man. He is God with us, so he's a human, and he's the God who saves. He accomplishes both at the same time, even though that was what we would have thought of as impossible. See, what the Jews would do up to this time is they would sacrifice a lamb, sacrifice a goat, sacrifice a dove, and they would pay the penalty for sin. But in comes the lamb of God, Jesus, who was the perfect man to actually atone for man's sins, yet he was still God, so he was able to offer salvation to humanity. Jesus is both God and man. And so this is an important point there. And so really, uh, point two, to some extent, is that Christmas tells us that God loves us and he makes himself known to us. God loves us and he makes himself known. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He shows us who he is. He shows us who God is. In fact, this is why we say, like we did in the Sermon on the Mount, which is later in Matthew, that Jesus is the only way to God because he's the one that lays out the path. Put it like this. If you don't like Jesus, you're not going to like the Father because they're the same. But if you like Jesus, if you think about how he humbled himself, well, that's what God does too. If you think about how he dwells with us, well, that's what God does too. How he welcomes sinners into his presence, well, that's what God does too. If you like the man Jesus, then you're going to like the Father because Jesus is God in the flesh. He has made himself known to us. Think about it like this. Did you guys ever do the, uh, the science projects like back in the day where uh, you would look at the sun when it was like an eclipse or something and you like class made the little terrible like cardboard like filter things? You know what I'm talking about? Like four people? Okay, yeah, y'all done that? Like, so normally you can't look at the sun, right? Like, if you try to look at the sun for too long, it, like, burns your iris, okay? And so you can't look at the sun, but there would be times when you could actually gaze upon the sun because an eclipse would happen, but you still have to use this per, uh, protection, right? That's what Jesus is to some extent. You can't look at God. God is too holy, like we just talked about earlier. He is too powerful. He is too majestic. To look at him literally ruins your very existence. 
But then in comes an eclipse, and in comes the sun, the filter through which we see God. When Jesus put on flesh, he was our filter where now we get to see the glory of God in its fullness, but in a way that you and I can understand. He is our high priest who's able to sympathize with us. He is God with us, God and man. So Matthew keeps trying to lay this out over and over again in a way that would make sense to us. Keep going up now to verse 21. It says, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. This, too, is a fulfillment of Scripture. Most people were waiting for a military Savior to save them from Rome or for them enemies, but Jesus was a Savior that saved people from a far greater sin, from a far greater enemy, which was sin, death, Satan, and even yourself. Jesus comes and offers salvation in a far greater way. And what Matthew is actually doing here is he's quoting from the Old Testament. So if you jump over really quickly, actually you don't have to jump, it's going to be on the screen. It's a really quick verse, but in Psalm 130, verse 8, it says, And he will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. Or iniquity is just another word for sin. And so Matthew is now quoting that he, being the Messiah, will save people from their sins. Not might save them, not could save them. Jesus will save them from their sins. He will accomplish the work of God. He will come and do exactly what God wanted to do, which was draw mankind to himself. God knew, Jesus knew, the Spirit knew that he would live a perfect life, die a perfect death, and through that, ransom people from their sin. Jesus will come down and save us. So think about it like this, okay? If Michael Cox, our new pastor, and one of our elders, say punched Jake Ridley, one of our other elders, in the nose, okay? And because Michael's strong and Jake has a weak little nose, he breaks his nose, all right? So he breaks his nose. I don't even know what that means. I'm just trying to teach Jake, okay? But if I come in, okay, and I stand in there, I see it happen, and I run over and I say, hey, Michael, I stand here before Jake, and I forgive you, okay? Like, what's going to happen? Does that make any sense at all, okay? Like, like Jake is the one that got punched in the nose and has a broken nose now, okay? But if I come in and say, Michael, I forgive you, do I have the authority to forgive? It didn't happen to me, right? Like, like I wasn't a part of that process. I didn't get my nose punched, okay? Because I wouldn't let that happen, right? But Jake did. So the only person, <laughs> he left. That's why I can say that. I saw him walk out, all right? The only person that can say that is Jake. Like Jake's the only person that can offer forgiveness to Michael. So then when Jesus comes and says he will save people from their sins, What's going on there? What that means is that sin is an offense against Jesus himself. What sin is is a punch in the face of God over and over and over again. And Jesus says, I'll take that punch and I will forgive them. Even though they sin against me, even though they harm me, I'm going to come and free them. I will save them from their sins. I will, not might, I will save them from their sins. So you think about the story of Saul, let's say, in the book of Acts. They come down and uh, Jesus blinds Saul because he sees the glory of God and he can't even look anymore and he goes blind. Once again, the terrifying, majestic God. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting who? Me, he says. Saul says, who are you? 
says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, Paul never did anything to Jesus. What he was doing was he was killing Christians. But what Jesus said is, sin is an offense against me. You are hurting me. And so when Jesus comes down and says, I will save them from their sins, what that insinuates is that all sin is against Jesus himself. And now Jesus, instead of destroying people, is actually going to come down and pay for their sins. He's going to absorb the blow of sin. He's going to take it himself because he wants to be close to you. And he will do what it takes to make that happen. Point three, God loves you and offers salvation to you. That's the story of Christmas. It's that God loves you and he offers salvation to you. Jesus wants to be close God wants to be close, and so he makes himself known and then offers salvation to us. This is where the message of Christmas should not lose its wonder because not only does it take the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, yes, it does, but it also takes the birth of Christ. It takes God becoming man in order to pay for the penalty of sins. Okay, finally, friends, I want to jump into a character that literally always gets completely left out during Christmas time, okay? And that's Joseph, all right? Jesus, we talk about, little baby Jesus, if you watch Talladega Nights, right? And so we think about Jesus over and over again. We obviously think about Mary, who was the the virgin who bore the son. And so, yes, amen, we think about her, but like, poor Joseph, right? Like, we kind of already mentioned it a little bit, but Joseph is the one that gets left out. And really, in some ways, Joseph is the one that gets the short end of the stick here, Okay, and so if you go back up to the passage as a whole, like think about the story of Joseph, think about what's going on in him. We see one thing right away that Matthew in verse 20 says, Joseph, the son of David, right? Did you see that there? How Matthew just kind of inserted that phrase. There's no reason to insert that phrase. Matthew's inserting it to show Jesus being Joseph's uh, adopted dad, if you will, has the right ability to rule as King David, like we talked about last week. But also, Jesus is, uh, or I'm sorry, Joseph is actually the descendant of the King of David. He is, to some extent, true Israel, who birthed forth the Messiah. Like, think about what's happening here, right? The woman says he's pregnant, and we already said that. We're being silly, but it's serious. This woman's either crazy or she thinks I'm crazy, and that's kind of messed up, okay? And then he's probably thinking, like, she cheated on me, and he feels bad about that. But then keep going, and the angel comes to Joseph and says, no, 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 this is actually the Messiah. And it says there in that verse, as soon as he woke up, he took Mary to be his wife. Joseph is immediately obedient to the dream that he had. No questions, no uh, trying to figure out, no bartering with God. He immediately jumps in. Now, Mary is a godly woman, but Joseph is also a godly man, is what that's telling us. Joseph is a godly man who will do what it takes to follow the will of God because Joseph, in that action, will now have to live the rest of his life in public shame. Because I want you to think about this. Remember how Joseph was like, this woman's probably crazy, right, is what's going on? That's the EBT, by the way, the Abonics Bible translation. Okay, that's what it says, right? But he's thinking that, this woman's tripping, okay? And then he walks in, okay, and now he says, okay, I'm going to assume this. And what is everybody else going to think about Joseph? 
Like, it's really simple, right? Like, if, if, if somebody came to you today and said, oh, hey, like, I conceived of the Holy Spirit, and you're like, oh, okay. And then the guy's like, no, actually, she did. Then you're like, okay, it's this dude's problem, <laughs> right? Either he's crazy and he thinks something insane, or he's so passive that he's not willing to own up to his mistake. Like, he couldn't control himself. He, he got her pregnant and said, hey, say it's from the Holy Spirit, is what people are probably thinking. And so literally as you go throughout the Gospels, people often call Jesus an illegitimate child because of that. Joseph now has to literally live with the shame of what God has called him to do the rest of his life because Jesus isn't his child. And he knows that. But he's faithful anyway. And he does what God calls him to do. Not only that, but Jesus said, name him, or God said, name him Jesus. Okay? And that culture you named your firstborn son after you because he carried down your legacy. He carried down your name. That means Joseph has no legacy. Joseph has no name, it seems. Yet, we are reading his story today. Why? Because of his faithfulness. So one point for us is that Joseph is actually a great example for you and I of faithfulness. Are you willing to do whatever it takes to make sure that God is glorified even if it means your shame. Like, you know how God sometimes calls you to submit to Scripture and culture really doesn't like some of the things that Scripture says? Are you going to do what God called you to do and maybe even face some of that public shame from culture? Or are you going to submit to culture and follow them rather than God? It would have been really, really easy for Joseph to be thinking about his legacy, thinking about his name, thinking about what people may say about him, his friends, his family, the people within Israel. And he could have said, ah, I don't know about this and tried to lie or squirt his way around it. No, he immediately accepted what was coming because he was willing to suffer the shame of following Jesus. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we willing to do that too? Are we willing to do what it takes to follow God? But not only this, there's something even greater here, friends. Do you know who the greater Joseph is in this story? It's Jesus. Jesus is the greater Joseph. See, Joseph was willing to suffer the shame kind of privately and on a small public scale so that he may bear forth the Messiah, that he may follow the will of God. But Jesus even more was willing to suffer the shame very publicly as he hung up naked on the cross. He literally not only was shamed by mankind, but it says he took our shame. Jesus bore our reproach. He took on our penalty, the things that we should have been publicly shamed for, he took on himself. Self, all Joseph is is a mini Jesus in this passage in some ways. Even more, think about it like this. Joseph was willing to bear forth an illegitimate child for the glory of God to his shame. But God, the Father, bears forth millions of illegitimate children for the glory of his name and for your joy, you and I. We are not biological children of God. We are biologically separated from God at birth. We are born into sin. Just like Jesus wasn't actually Joseph's son, we are not actually sons and daughters of God at birth, yet God does whatever it takes, even bearing shame upon his name so that he may bring you into the family of God and that he keeps you and he raises you and he nurtures you just like Joseph did to Jesus. God is the greater Joseph. God does what it takes that you may know him and come in into his presence, this is what Christmas tells us, that God loves you so much 
that he would become a little tiny human, that he would make himself known to you, that he would offer salvation, the forgiveness of sins, and that he would bear shame, that you may walk in newness of life in Christ. Friends, this is the all, the majesty, the mystery of Christmas. God became flesh, a little tiny baby, born in a manger, Luke's gospel tells us. You know what a manger is? Like a, like a feeding trough. Like you know what you get baptized in here at the well? <laughs> All right. See, now baptisms feel better, right? You're getting baptized when Jesus was born in, okay? Like that's what it was. The God of the universe exited heaven, came down to earth to save you and I. Friends, this is the majesty, the, the, the irony, the mystery of Christmas. God became flesh and did what it t- took to know you. And so here's my challenge for us today. What I want you to think about. If you're a believer, like, like, like does this shock you? Does this make you wonder and awe? Does this make you want to worship? Does this stir up your heart's affections for Christ, the Savior, who became man that you may know him? I'll admit, literally, working on a sermon this week, it doesn't for me all the time. Oftentimes, my heart is hardened to the truth of the gospel, that God does what it takes to make himself known. This is profound, friends. And we have to get this. We have to ask our hearts, command our hearts, demand our hearts to worship the Savior because he is worthy. God did what it takes. Are you going to do what it takes to know God and to make him known to others? If you don't know Christ as Savior, if you're wrestling with the Christian faith, if you're trying to figure God out, or maybe somebody just drug you in today, said, hey, it's close to Christmas. How about you come? Or whatever it may be. Like, like, like does this make sense? Like, like how much God wants to know you? Either this is one of the weirdest mystery stories of all time, doesn't even really make a whole lot of sense, or this is God's way of making himself known, and he calls you to himself. Will you come? Even today, will you come and enter into the intimacy that God desires to have with you? This is the wonder of Christmas. Let us never lose this mystery, not just in December, but throughout the whole year, remembering that God became flesh to save you and I. I love you guys. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. Jesus, that you are joy, you are hope, you are love, you are peace, that you, Jesus, became a man, frail, weak. Thank you, even for the baby we hear right now. That was you, Jesus. The God who spoke and everything came into existence became that. God, I admit, my heart is dull to that truth. I get blinded by the needs of life and the busyness and the pace, and I forget to slow down and to become a child again and to wonder at this truth and to awe at this story, to remember that you love us so much that you did what it took to make yourself known to us, God. Would we do what it takes to know you? 
Would you spark within us, Holy Spirit, a desire to see you in more and more profound ways, God? I pray for every man and woman in this room that they would be able to understand you in a deeper, more intimate way, God. That they would feel you and know you on an emotional level. That they would understand and perceive you on an intellectual level. That they would be connected with you on a relational level and not just leave you as a math problem to be figured out, but a God to be known. God, would you help us to know you? Lord, I pray that even today, men and women who came into this room, not your children, would become your children, God. Holy Spirit, I pray even right now that you would work on our hearts and show us what you do to save us. God, we do not deserve you as our Father. Thank you for letting it be. I pray this in your very beautiful name. Amen.